Welcome to See the Change podcast, a space where we bring together community builders and change makers to hear the stories that inspire them to take action for social change. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Tanya Ayala, and Emmanuel Lyons. This is part one of our interview with Peter Sarinchuk, the medical director at Sea Change Initiative. He's a medical doctor with more than a dozen years of international experience, and he's worked in different areas of Southern Africa, India, and China. Peter currently lives in Ontario with his family, where he works in a community health center and supports Sea Change Initiative projects with tuberculosis in the north and now COVID globally. Let's dive in. Hey, Peter, can you hear us? Hello, good morning. Sorry, a little bit late. Good morning, no problem. Thanks for joining us. How was your morning uh, dropping off your kids at school? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit rainy here. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, yeah, as you can imagine, it takes a little bit of time to get everything together and lunches and all that stuff. So that's where I am at my point in life. Yeah. So, you know, again, thank you for for agreeing to join us for the podcast. So just to get started, uh, for our audience members who don't know you, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your professional background? Sure. Yeah. So I I was born in, uh, in Ontario, Southern Ontario. I grew up in the Niagara region. yeah, I went to uh, to medical school in Toronto, um, and then after I graduated, I, I graduated as a as a family physician, and I, I did a lot of locum work. So locum would be replacement work. So I, I worked in a number of different provinces, and eventually um, um, took the the big uh, leap and and uh, applied to work with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders. So. Um, yeah, eventually I, I started working with uh, MSF uh, and uh, did that uh, on and off for uh, about a dozen years. So that was um, working in a lot in Southern Africa, but also in, in China and um, in India as well, too. So after that, I ended up coming back to, uh, to Canada to, uh, to live and, uh, and work. So uh, and ended up back in the Niagara region again. So um, yeah, my life has sort of come full circle. And um, yeah, I've got a couple of kids and uh, spend a lot of time running around with them and riding bicycles and teaching them. And uh, yeah, that's where I am now. Awesome. And now that you're back in Canada and you're settled down, what does your day-to-day look like in your work, especially now with COVID? Hmm. Um, so every day is, it looks a little bit different. So I, I do clinical work three days a week. So I work in a, in a community health center. So that's, um, that's a, a model where you've got, um, different clinicians. So, uh, doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses working together with, um, counselors, social workers, physio and, and, and other, um, other healthcare professionals. So we provide, medical care to um, people with high medical needs. So that would be the elderly, that would be people with, with addictions, with um, mental health uh, challenges as well too. So I do that three days a week. That takes up um, my days um, on those three days. And then, um, yeah, the rest of the time, I, uh, apart from devoting to my family, I, I, I uh, support Sea uh, change and their initiatives. So. 
So we've done uh, quite a few different types of, of, of activities over the, the past years. So everything from holding uh, uh, workshops to um, having radio sessions to um, supporting um, COVID now as well too. So yeah, my evenings now, I do try to keep up to date with, with the latest sort of medical um, uh, advancements and news related to, to COVID as well as tuberculosis. So I should say that I've got an interest in, in tuberculosis. So a lot of my work with, with MSF in international settings was related to, to TB and how to uh, diagnose and, and treat that in, in resource limited settings. So, yeah, so every day is a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. And I can imagine that with COVID that's shaken things up a bit. How are you balancing all of that with raising a young family? Hmm. Yeah, so trying to get uh, a lot of things done uh, when the kids are either napping or um, uh, going to bed, uh, hopefully early. Uh, so after that, I, I do some work on the computer and um, yeah, my wife's a social worker, so she's interested in 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 COVID and and public health, and yeah, we um, we try to keep up to date together on 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 things in the evenings when the kids are are in bed. Okay, so not typically a nine to five type of schedule. <laughs> no, for surely not. <laughs> I I'd love to take a a step back and just. Uh, spend some more time talking about, um, you said you worked uh, in Africa, in China and in India with MSF and you know you did some work with HIV and like you said tuberculosis clinical research. Um, so what motivated you to, uh, to start and to get involved in these types of projects? Yeah, so it took a few years to get to the point, but you know, when I was um, doing my locum work across Canada, it, um, it gradually dawned on me that um, that there's there's quite a lot of quite a lot of disparity, not just within Canada, but um, around the world. A lot of people might realize that when they're younger, but I think I lived a fairly sheltered life, so it took me a a while to realize how great that disparity was. So. Um, Eventually, I figured out that you know the 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 greatest um, bang for the buck when it terms when it came to to my medical work could could be achieved um, in resource limited settings. So settings where where they don't necessarily have access to um, all of the the healthcare professionals, the tests that are needed, the the medications. So you 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 use what you can in those settings and uh, try to achieve good medical outcomes. So obviously, you know, reduce death rates there and, and reduce morbidity, so sickness as well too. So, yeah, so um, going from Canada to, to Southern Africa, I mean, the, the initial step was, was quite difficult because you, you leave your, your friends and family behind. But when you get there, I mean, you realize that you're working, I mean, not, not as an individual, but as part of, of a large team. And with the MSF, it was quite a large team with, with good supports and you're with like-minded people. So, I mean, it, you quickly develop um, friendships there. And um, it, it was very rewarding, the type of work, because um, 
yeah, the people were, were very grateful. They uh, didn't really do a lot of complaining. We could, uh, um, you know, achieve uh, our outcomes, so reducing morbidity and mortality, you know, with, with some fairly basic medical um, procedures or activities. So, um, yeah, very rewarding work. So that's why I, I, I ended up um, continuing on for, for quite a few years with MSF. I read that you worked uh, you worked with MSF for 15 years doing this type of work, correct? Yeah, so it was on on and off. So I, I would work for a couple of years and then I would come back um, to Canada and maybe work uh, for a, a month or two and then go back and, and, and start working in a different uh, project or setting. And uh, eventually I, I did a lot of um, um, uh, not necessarily clinical work there, but it was supporting other clinicians. So... So I became a, a TBHIV advisor working for the, the, the Belgian uh, section of, of MSF. So it was a lot of traveling around supporting different uh, projects. So it was quite busy there. We were, um, I mean, once, once we um, have some activities and some achievements, then we like to advocate, you know, for, for those people that, that we're supporting. So a lot of our our work as well as is advocacy and sometimes that does take the place of um, of writing up um, uh, manuscripts for for medical journals too just to describe our experience and show that it is possible to get um, good results in resource limited settings whether it's related to HIV TB or, or other medical um, initiatives I also I mean you were talking about um, the work you were doing, how it felt rewarding uh, in that you were working with a team. And so I guess that leads me to my next question, which is, um, could you tell us a bit about the people that inspire you or who've mentored you along the way? Uh, yeah, so um, th there's a couple of different people who've um, inspired me over the over the years. So there's, there's one... Uh, Belgian doctor who had a lot more experience than I did and um, um, just, you know, watching him work and uh, he was very patient um, uh, in, in dealing with, you know, we, we have to deal with local health authorities quite a bit and, and sometimes that can be challenging, but, but he was uh, very patient. He persevered and over a number of months to years, you know, we would get, get uh, our, our objectives met. Um, so, so um, yeah, it's sort of older, more experienced people in, in the humanitarian field that, um, that, that motivated me and, and kept me going at times. But I should say as well that um, a lot of it is the people in, in, in the setting where we're working. So people who, who are sick, um, that's, you know, a, 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 an easy motivation for for healthcare professionals when, when you know that you can help those people. And um, yeah, with, with HIV and TB, often we would say, see the same person, they would have to come back regularly, you know, every few weeks. So we get to know them and their families. And, and, and the other people that inspire me are, are the local healthcare professionals. So when MSF um, um, starts, uh, implements a project, it's, um, uh, using the talents of, of the local um, nurses and uh, and doctors and and community health workers, so 
so there, um, because really there aren't enough nurses or, or doctors, um, we rely a lot on, on community health workers. So these are our lay people with a small amount of uh, medical training who can, who can provide, you know, important uh, um, support to a community. So yeah, we got to know, or I got, got to know a lot of the local healthcare professionals and, and yeah, that was a great inspiration to me as well. I find that very interesting that you consider the people that trained you or mentored you as inspirational as well as the people that you were treating. And bringing you back to Canada and what you're working on here, when did you first learn about the tuberculosis epidemic in Northern Canada? So there, there's a bit of irony there because, um, you know, I mentioned we, we would develop manuscripts, you know, related to tuberculosis. This was um, 15 or 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and, and that would involve, you know, doing some research related to different to tuberculosis rates in different countries. And I mean, if you look at Canada as a whole, our, our TB rate is, is low. But if you look at Canada's north, the, the TB rates there are actually astronomically high. So, yeah, I was um, reading through some different um, resources uh, and it jumped out at me that in Canada's north, the Inuit uh, are, are at much higher risk of developing tuberculosis. So this would have been, yeah, 10, 10 or so years ago when, um, yeah, when rates started to, to climb again in, yeah, so 10 to 20 years ago, the, the rates started to climb again in, of, of TB in Canada's north. So, yeah, the irony is that I, you know, I sort of woke up to that fact when I was working overseas that um, that uh, there's a crisis of, of TB in Canada's north. Okay, that's interesting. And how did you get involved with Sea Change Initiative or when did you meet Rachel? Yeah, so this would have been early 2018. So um, Rachel was looking for someone to provide some medical technical support to um, to see changes activities. So yeah, we started out very much with tuberculosis on our mind. So um, yeah, the timing was was right. I, I had um, you know finished uh, working with MSF and. Um, and uh, was looking for a new challenge and uh, yeah it worked out that um, Rachel and I uh, talked about it and um, it was a good fit so I started on as as um, Sea Changes Medical Advisor. And now that you've had some time working with the communities in Nunavut, what challenges or obstacles do you see for long-term health initiatives there? Yeah, so there's there are some large challenges that largely come down to the um, the social determinants of health. So um, when we say social determinants of health, I mean these are 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 not necessarily specific medical issues. There's there's a lot of things uh, you know conditions that people you know are born into, grow with, live with that um, really affect their health. And and a couple of the big ones in in indigenous communities would be um, food security or insecurity. You know, it's access to, to decent housing. Some uh, medical uh, diseases um, um, will spread much more readily if, if, um, if there's a lot of people living in, in one house. So um, yeah, these social determinants of health are, are major obstacles for 
long-term uh, health initiatives in in Nunavut and, and other indigenous communities. Okay, so it sounds that there's an intersection between the social circumstances as well as the medical, like physical health. Um, so how do you see the future of public health in Canada's indigenous communities? And what do you feel is important to include in the solutions? So, um, I'm, yeah, just speaking in general here, um, you know, the medical system often is, is quite top down. So you, you get, um, you know, people who don't necessarily um, understand a culture who are making rules that might be good for Southern Canada, but, um, or, or urban populations that might not necessarily work well in, in indigenous communities. So there, I would argue that um, uh, a bottom-up approach is, is more often uh, needed and, and would be more, more successful. Um, so the question is whether this current top-down approach can, can be flipped upside down and, and, and uh, be made into a much more uh, bottom-up approach. So, so that's the future I would like to see when it comes to, to public health interventions. I mean, really, you need uh, uh, interventions that are um, uh, culturally uh, appropriate, that um, a lot that are accepted by the community, that that result in in trust, um, and ultimately um, prevent delayed diagnoses. So, if we take TB for example, um, the earlier you diagnose a case of active TB, the better, because that prevents the infection from being transmitted to other people. If a person who's coughing uh, trusts the, the, the healthcare system, hopefully they'll come fairly soon if they develop a new cough. If they don't trust the healthcare system, then, then they, might, they might go on uh, living their life despite having this cough and, and the, their presentation to the local health services might be very much delayed. And if it is due to TB, their cough, I mean, they, they might have transmitted to, to a number of other people before they're actually diagnosed and, and treated. So, yeah, it's, you know, I would like to see a, more of a bottom-up approach, you know, so how, how to make that happen, it's not easy. I mean, public health departments, um, yeah, they, um, they are quite top-down. So that's something I'd like to see change. How would you want to include community members in that solution? Are they support um, or do you see them perhaps being trained as medical professionals themselves? Um, how would you maybe change that um, landscape? So uh, ideally it would be nice to uh, encourage and support um, young people to enter healthcare professionals, whether it's nursing, social work, medicine, so that, you know, a number of years from now, we can have um, people who grew up in those communities coming back and, and working um, there and uh, obviously understanding the culture, knowing the language and, and being able to deliver healthcare services. So, so that, that would take many years, of course. In the meantime, I mean, it, it's. Um, I mean, it would 
it would mean taking advantage of people who are interested in health and um, lay people, I mean, who can be receive some training and, and ongoing support and, and become community health workers. So using these community health workers, um, again, people embedded in the community to, um, to help with, with medical activities, whether they're related to, you know, TB or COVID or, or, or mental health, um, you know, anything really that the community, any health issues that commu the community deems as, as a priority for them. So yeah, it's using lay people in, in certain roles. So that, that's what we've done overseas and it, it worked actually quite well. There's a lot of good um, evidence to, to support uh, the use of community health workers. Okay, and part of the Sea Change Initiative programs sounds kind of similar to what you're speaking of right now, which was the TV workshops. Um, what was important for setting up those workshops? You mentioned including people embedded in the community. Um, was that the main objective in setting those up? Yeah, so our, our first uh, workshop that we had, um, it was it was a it was more of a healing workshop. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, emotions tied to TB in 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 communities that have been affected. So there's a history of of people being removed from communities and um, brought down to south to the south for treatment. And uh, sometimes they would come back a number of years later, and sometimes they wouldn't. So people um, you know families were were. Uh, torn apart, and um, that led to a lot of a lot of um, you know, stress and uh, emotion and um, and sadness and anger. And um, so, when we had our first TB workshop, there was a lot of discussion around those points, and um, and hopefully, we we helped you know the community members who were there to to um, to uh, partly overcome. Um, this um these bad feelings uh, related to tuberculosis so you know once that happens then we um we work together and and talk about how best to um to move forward so yeah again it's it's including you know local people um you know often elders who who have great lived experience you know including them in in decisions and and how to move forward so um, I should point out that um, I mean we're not we're not doing the work of the 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 government there. We're we're very much separate, so we don't um, diagnose people and we don't treat people. What we do is we we uh, work more on the prevention side, and part of that is you know um, um, teaching people that you know whenever they develop a new cough, you know it would be important to get to, to get tested so we're more on the on the side of, of getting people to to present to the to the local health service early so um yeah i'm not sure if i answered your question there no that's great and that concludes part one of this episode stay tuned for more thank you for listening to see the change podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and share it with a friend if you'd like to help us make this podcast the best it can be, you can support us with a monthly subscription on patreon.com slash see the change. 
If you want to know more about Sea Change Initiative, visit seachangeinitiative.org and find us on social media. This has been a Sea Change Initiative production, written, produced, and edited by Tanya Ayala and Emmanuel Lyons. Music by Charles the Emperor. As always, thank you for listening.